you know, some of my favorite scenes in movies or plays or even in books is right before the big battle, okay? So it's right near the end. We're about to hit the climax, and the hero or the main character you've been following, right, the, the troops are around, and they got to rally the troops to get them ready, usually against overwhelming odds. And so they start to give this speech, right? And it's, that speech is one of my favorite things. I think of Braveheart with William Wallace and riding around, they're all painted blue, and they're, they're yelling and hollering. And Henry V, the famous St. Crispin's Day speech, where he tells them that you will remember this day forever, the wounds that you have. Or in Lord of the Rings, it's got several of these scenes, and I just, I eat them up every single time. In fact, as I was preparing my sermon and thinking about this, then I had to go down the rabbit hole for research and watch all of these again. Um, that took a little longer than I thought it would have originally. But it just, it, I just love them. It just gets me hype, right? It's just so exciting, especially in the movie, because the music is swelling, and it's building, and then it crescendos, and it just, it gives me goosebumps. You just get excited. I want to go fight or run or do something exciting. Right, but really, at, at this point in the book of Joshua, in chapter 5, that's where we're at. Okay, we're, they are on the right side of the river now. They've crossed the Jordan. Jericho is right in front of them. They're ready to go to battle. The people are terrified. They're shaking. And now it's time for the speech. It's time to charge. But God actually doesn't do it that way. That's what we would expect to happen. But the way that this chapter unfolds is not quite like Braveheart or Lord of the Rings or any of these other plays or, or films. It, it happens differently. And what I want to do this morning is look at, well, why? Why does God do that? And what does this have to teach us? Because I think what this passage is for us this morning is God wants us to learn how we should act and how we should prepare. And what do we do when the battle is coming? When the battle's in front of us, when the challenge in our life is here, how are we to react? How are we to prepare? What are we supposed to do? And the fact that this doesn't unfold the way that you would expect, I think, is meant to teach us this lesson. And we need this, especially as believers. So some of you are in a battle right now. Some of you are in the midst of trying circumstances and in things that are difficult. Some of you are just coming on the other side of it. And some of you, whether you know it or not, you're about to go into another one. But wherever we're at, we all need to be ready and be spiritually prepared. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at chapter 5. I'm going to just read through the, the entire chapter. And so if you would stand, if you're able, um, just as we read from God's Word about how to prepare for spiritual battle. At chapter 5 of Joshua, it says, As soon as the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, because there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibbeth Haraloth. And this reason why Joshua circumcised them all, all the males of the people who had come out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom He had raised in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the, play, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, at that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I, thank, I ask that you would be here this morning. You would prepare our hearts. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, would you teach us how we should act? Would you teach us how we can be prepared for the battles in life that will come for us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So point number one, um, if you, you like to take notes in your bulletin, is that God is on His own side. Is that God is on His own side. And I'm actually going to start at the end of the chapter. We're going to, we're going to look at 13 through 15. And the reason I'm doing this is because the discussion that Joshua has with the angel of, and the commander of the armies of the Lord, I really think frames this whole chapter. I think it helps us understand it. And so what's happening right in 13, right? Joshua, he's by Jericho, and he lifts up his eyes, and he looks, right? So he's, he's scouting it out, probably, right? That's what I would be doing. If I was there and I'm going to attack it, well, let's go look at it. Let's go see this big fortress. So, so he's looking, and he, he looks, and his eyes come up, and then, behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. There's that behold again. We talked about that last week, right? It's, it's kind of meant to shock here of like, oh, my goodness, there's a dude right here, and his sword is out. Okay, his sword is drawn. That seems like kind of threatening, okay? Like he's ready to use it. Wouldn't, otherwise, it would just be put away. And so it looks like the guy's ready for a fight. And so Joshua asks a question, and he doesn't realize who he's talking to, and he doesn't even realize when he asks it how important this question is. But he asks, are you for us, at the end of 13, or for our adversaries? Which Joshua means like, okay, are we going to fight, or do we not have to fight? Like, what's, what are we doing here? But on a deeper level, this is really a question that Israel has to reckon with before they go to battle. Before they go into the land of Canaan and start conquering and fighting, they need to know and they have to ask, is God going to side with them on all the battles to come or is He going to be with their enemies? And we ask this question of God all the time, right? Or, or we don't ask it, but we can assume it, right? We assume God is on my side. God's on my team. God is with my people. 
And we love to separate people into sides, right? We love to, to put them into groups and to, so I can know that your side is bad and my side is good and God's on my side, right? And we can do this. We can ask questions. Are you an Israelite or are you a Canaanite? Are you with us or are you with them? Are you an American or are you a foreigner? Are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Are you a Baptist or are you Presbyterian? Okay, are you a city person or are you a rural person? Are you a Sooner or are you an Okie? Right? We, we, can, we can do this, right? We, we separate and we want to know. And, and, and part of when we're asking that is, are you on the good side, the side of God, or are you on the other team? Or are you with the other people? But look how God responds to that question in 14. No. No. Some of your translations, it may say, neither. God's telling Joshua, no, 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 you're asking the wrong question. You missed the point. It's not if I'm on your side or not. I'm on my own side. The question is, are you going to be on my side or not? Not am I going to be on your side? And this is, right, the, the problem is not that we have different groups, really, or that we, we think in this. Okay, the problem isn't we have different college football teams that we root for or anything like that. The problem is when we start to think that God loves my group the most. God cares about my group, and He does not care about your group. God is on my team, and your team is the worst, right? Your team is the one that God fights against. Okay, if Joshua, if the leader of the people of Israel, God's chosen nation at this point in history, if he can't get God to say, I am on your side, Joshua, then we really need to be careful anytime we think we can say God is on my side and he is on my team. Because if anybody can say that, if anyone can have God say, yep, I am on your side 100%, it's the best one, don't worry about it, it would be Joshua here, but God says, no, 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 no. I'm on my own side. I love this quote from Dr. Calhoun that I found. He said, God did not come to take sides, but to take over. And it is so true. He is not interested in the way that we like to divide and we like to fight and we like to argue. He wants to know who's obedient. Okay, I don't care which side you're on over here. Are you on my side or are you not? And Joshua immediately here, he doesn't realize right away that he's conversing with God. And in this, the only name we get here, right, is in 14, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now some will take this and say they just think it's an angel, but I think it's pretty clear that this is God. And I think not just pretty clear it's God, I think this is clear this is an appearance of Jesus. Because Joshua falls on his face and worships. He worships him, right? He's, that's something you only do to God or to deity. And there's a number of other places where angels come or the apostles come and people fall on their face and worship because they're just so amazed. And they always stop him and say, no, 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 don't worship me. It's not right that you do this. But that's not what happens here. This person receives the worship. It's indicating they're deserving of the worship. And not just that, but verse 15 at the end, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Those words sound familiar? They should. It's the words that God said to Moses when Moses was at the burning bush in the presence of God. It's exactly the same. It's another parallel between Moses and Joshua. And it's holy because Joshua is in the presence of God. And I do think this is an example. This is an example of an early appearance of Christ before His physical birth at Christmas, before the Incarnation. If you want a $5 theological word to, to put away, you can, we call this a Christophany. 
Okay, it's or a theophany is an appearance of God. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ um, before Christ. If you're interested in that, but you know, flex my knowledge a little bit, I guess. Um, but if you've ever watched a movie, right, or you've read a book that has a crazy twist at the end, and then when you you go back, right, so you watch it, it blows your mind. Oh my gosh, how did I not see that? That was incredible. Can't believe they were bad the whole time, or this thing was that, or whatever, right? Big twist. Okay, when you watch it the second time, have you ever watched it and then kick yourself? How did I miss that? That's obvious. It's everywhere. They're clearly a bad guy. They've been doing all this stuff. How did I not pay attention? Right? The clues are all there, but the first time through, you don't have all the information. So, so you miss it. You don't pick up on what's going to come. And that's kind of what happens here in the Bible, right? Because the Trinity, that's what we believe. We believe that God is, there is one God, but He exists in three persons. There are three Three essences. One substance, three essences. That's a, a word we use. So it, what this means is at the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, Christ and the Holy Spirit are also there with God at creation. They have to be. They can't be created. Jesus didn't pop into existence when Mary became pregnant. He had to always exist. But that's part of the mystery and the revelation of God. They're in the background. There are hints, right? Even the beginning of Genesis where God says, Let's make man in our image. There's lots of plural there. Okay, it's not Christians didn't invent it later. It was always here in the beginning. But it doesn't until you get to the end, when you finish the whole Bible in Revelation, then you go back and say, wow, Jesus is everywhere. It's everywhere because it points to Him, but here it's everywhere because here He is. He shows up. Now, this doesn't mean He had a physical body yet because the actual incarnation of Jesus that happens at his birth, is different, but here he has a physical appearance, and he appears to speak to Joshua. And Joshua responds rightly. He submits in verse 14 and says, what does my Lord say to his servant? He acknowledges, okay, God, you are in charge. You're the commander. You're the leader of the armies. You've got, you've got the side. I, I want to be on your side. And he submits. He submits, and he worships, and he, he takes off his sandals, Right at the end, and Joshua did so. Joshua acknowledges he's in the presence of God. In our worship, in Joshua's worship, it has to begin by acknowledging that God is not on sides. And God is not a national God. Because this was the thing at this point in time. Every people, every group, every city, they have their own gods. Okay? Or they maybe have one God that's their top God. Right? And so when they're fighting with each other, it's, well, is my God better than your God? Well, I won, so that means your God is terrible and my God is the victor. Okay, But they're scared of the Israelites' God because, man, his God seems better than our God. This is kind of terrifying. But God needs his people to know, I am not like these other gods. I am not just a national God. I am not just a trinket you can carry around into battle to prove that Israelites are the greatest ever or to prove that your nation is the greatest I'm not just going to let you win every battle because that's how it works. That's how they viewed things. As long, whoever was the victor, that showed their God was the best. We're going to see over and throughout the book of Joshua, there are times when they win and it's because they're obedient and there are times when they lose and it's because they're disobedient. God is not just automatically going to let them win everything because He's their God. They have to be on God's side. God isn't just going to be on their side no matter what. But throughout history, people have always tried to place God on their side, right? We, we always want Him on our side. And even people who, who do not know Jesus, even people who are unbelievers, even people who are completely secular or atheists, they want to be on the right side. 
Right? We say the phrase, the right side of history. That happens a lot, right? Because we want to be on the winning side. At the end, we want to be on the side that is said, yep, this one is right and they are wrong. We want to be on the side that God or the, for the secular person, the cosmos as they view it, will vindicate us at the end. Right during the Crusades, the church declared God's on our side, so let's kill all those other people. The Civil War, Christians declared on both sides, God's on our side, He's going to vindicate us. Even in the Revolutionary War, there's believers on both sides. The king saying, God's on my side. He gave me the right to do this. And some were saying, well, no, God says we shouldn't do this. Well, God says we should. God's on our side. Abusers claim that God has chosen them, and He's on their side, and you need to submit to their abusive leadership. Okay, people on all times can, can do this. We try and co-opt God onto our team. On a lighter note, this makes me think of sports. Right, so there's times when you see, especially this happens more high school than on higher levels. But you see, team, both teams will get down and pray. Maybe they're praying separately. You go, oh, that's great. They're 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 praying to God. Isn't that awesome? Well, okay, if they're both praying for victory, who wins? Okay, is it the people who who did their Bible study more that week? Okay, is it the people who asked prayers better? Uh, do the Baptists win or the Presbyterian? Or, or, or which one wins? Okay, if they're both asking for victory, who, who's actually it going to happen? And, and if the side that prays for victory and then they lose, and the side that didn't pray and hates God wins, what does that say? What does that say about God? Oh, no. Right? It doesn't say anything. Because God's not on one side or another side. God's not a fan of a favorite sports team, I don't think. I don't have anything in Scripture to tell me He is. He's not interested in our games. He's not interested in being put or co-opted into our own things. God is on His own side. And we have to remind ourselves of that, that God is not automatically on my side, on my team, with my group, with whatever it is that I think. And so the implication there is, well, if God's on His own side, what do we do? Well, point number two is we need to get on God's side. We need to get on God's side, right? That's obvious, okay? If God has His own side, then I need to get off my little side and I need to go join and hang out where God is. And the majority of this passage, right, we're going to look kind of at, at verse 2 through 9. Okay, and that word circumcision pops up a lot here. Right? I didn't count it, but it is a number of times. It's almost like two or three at every single verse. It pops up over and over and over again. And the first thing that God tells them right in verse 2 is, okay, now you guys are ready. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. So we need to talk about that. Well, what is that? Why would God do that? It's a weird thing to ask your army to do before battle. Well, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Okay, it's the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And you can read about it back in Genesis 17 if you want to refresh yourself to, to what it is. And God makes this promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. And, and here's how that's going to work. And now I need you and every single male in your family to be circumcised. And the reason of this is because it is going to be a symbol that you are on my side. It's a symbol that you are on the, in the family of God, that you are my people and that I am your God. That you are, it's a physical sign that claims you're a follower of Yahweh. It's a sign that you've put your faith in the God of Abraham and in the Bible. And the men bear this symbol, right, because they are symbolic as the, the leaders and bear it on behalf of everyone else, on, on their families and on their nations and their tribes. But the problem is that the people aren't circumcised. The people don't have this symbol. So the previous generation, they didn't listen to God the last time they got to the river. 
The last time they came here and they were on the edge of Canaan, they said, now, God, we're actually too scared. I don't think we want to go into the land. And so they had to wander in the wilderness. Because they didn't obey and they didn't trust God, they had to spend 40 years wandering until all of those people die out. And it says that in, kind of in verse 4, for all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of the war died in the wilderness on the way. Because, and then verse 7, all right, but then 5, at the beginning of 5, it tells us, though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So while they're wandering, okay, they're living, that's 40 years. So they're wandering, but they're doing their thing. They're having children, they're having grandchildren, but those sons are not getting circumcised. And it repeats it in verse 7, just so you're clear that you get it. So it was their children whom God raised in their place that Joshua circumcised because they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the parents and their generation's disobedience, it didn't stop when they didn't go into the promised land. It actually continued. Because they don't circumcise their children. Well, they, they miss out and they say, well, well, I mean, we don't know why they did it, but maybe they just went, well, okay, whatever. Well, forget you, God. You're not going to give me the blessing, then I'm not going to follow in you. And, and their disobedience just continues. And you have to think, if they won't take this most basic step, right? And so if they won't say, yes, we're going to circumcise our children to show God the, the first thing you asked us to do to prove that we are on your side, we are on your team, that you are our God. If they won't do that, how much do you think they're teaching their children about God? How much of the law do you think they're telling them? How much about Abraham? you think they're telling them how to, to honor God? I can't imagine that they are, especially because so many things like Passover, they can't participate in unless they're circumcised. And the reference in verse 2 where it says, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. That, that word stuck out to me the first time. Well, flint knives, why would it say that? Why wouldn't it just say, hey, circumcise them or use a knife? Why is it referencing flint here? Well, one of the last times that flint knives pop up is with Moses and his wife, Zephora. And it happens because Moses actually, even after God's called him, failed to circumcise his own son. And so God goes to actually kill Moses because Moses isn't acting and isn't walking and isn't declaring, yep, I, you are my God and I'm on your side and I'm with part of your family and with your people. And so God is actually coming to kill Moses until his wife's faithfulness and brilliance saves his life by circumcising their son with a flint knife. And then they kind of have this back and forth. But the reference of it, I think, in making this known is, guys, you should have done this way back in the wilderness. You shouldn't have to be doing this now. Everyone should have already been circumcised, just like Moses should have already circumcised his son. He knew better. Well, one thing we need to point out as well with circumcision is that the, the invitation of this is open to everyone. Even back then, we, we can get it misconstrued, but even with Israel, there was an invitation for other people to come and to join them. There were ways and there were avenues for people of other nations to come into the family of God, to come and join them, to come get on God's side. We, we already talked about Rahab, and we're going to see her again in chapter 6 and how her family come and they join and we assume then submit to the sign of circumcision and being in God's family. 
In fact, when they left Egypt, it wasn't just the Israelites who were set free. Exodus 12, 38 tells us that a mixed multitude comes out with them as well. People from all the other nations, probably slaves, probably some other Egyptians as well, they, they all come to follow God and to see where He will lead. And here, they all get circumcised in eight, and the whole nation, everyone gets circumcised together. God's team, His family, His people, it is not just the Israelites. This, also mean, this means that the, the invitation for anyone who wants to join God's family is wide open. It's still true today. You don't have to have Christian parents. You don't have to come from a Christian home. You don't have to have anybody in your family or anybody anywhere throughout your entire history who has been saved ever to come into God's family. The gospel and the salvation that Jesus offers is for all people. It is for every man, every woman, and child that would turn to Jesus in faith. It's there. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 might be my favorite verse in this whole section. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Mere translations may, may say, I have rolled away the shame of Egypt from you. The shame and the reproach and the stench of their wickedness and their refusal to submit to God, it just rolls down the hill and out of God's sight and out of their sight. And they renamed the place, right? For the name Gilgal, it actually kind of sounds, it's a play on roll. So when they saw that place, they went, hey, that's where God rolled away our shame. And listen to me, God, God still does this today. And when you become a Christian, when you submit your life to Jesus, your shame and your sin, it gets rolled away by God. He kicks it down the hill and it fades from your sight and from His. I, I was awake the other night um, because I often wake up in the middle of the night and struggle going back to sleep. Uh, but sometimes it, it happens, your thoughts just start to wander, and then you just start to wander about all sorts of different things, and you wonder, man, why am I thinking about that? Well, often for me what happens is I start just going through the Rolodex, you remember Rolodexes, okay, and just going through, hey, what are all the mistakes that I've ever made in my life that I could feel bad about? <laughs> why don't I go ahead and think through all of those? That sounds like a really productive thing to do at 3 in the morning. Okay, and so the other night I was there and I was just going back through and I just, I was getting all the way back to things that I did when I was seven, when I was a child. I'm in elementary school and the shame is still with me, right? When I think about it, it still makes it hard to sleep. It still makes me, when I think, I hear the whispers of the enemy say, wow, I am a horrible person. Wow, I am unlovable. Wow, I am unqualified to serve God. Wow, how could anyone love? Wow, how could God care about me? Wow, look at the shame builds and it stays even decades later, doesn't it? But this verse reminds us, and what it reminded me this week at least is always doing that as well. God rolls away our shame, that He removes our approach, our reproach. I mean, if you don't know Jesus, if, or if you've been just curious about Jesus, I mean, He is ready to kick your shame down the hill. He will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. You are not dirty. And even if you do know Jesus, you need this reminder like I do too. You are not unlovable. 
You are not too far gone. You are not too wicked. You are not too sinful for Jesus. He loves you. And He wants you, and He still is in the business of kicking our shame down the hill. I just love that picture. But there's a problem with circumcision, isn't there? Because circumcision, really, it's, it's only an outward symbol. And the, so much of the prophets later throughout the Old Testament, they attack Israel and call them and say how they have uncircumcised hearts. Because they reference, okay, you, you did the thing outwardly, and you needed to do it. It's important. God clearly takes it very seriously here in this passage. Right? Because if you even refuse the outward symbol, if you're not even going to pretend to be in God's family, that reveals something about you. But for us, this is part of why circumcision's been replaced. Okay, now we have baptism. And baptism and circumcision have some important similarities, some things that, are, that continue, and they also have some really significant differences that are important as well. Right? Baptism, it's a physical sign to the world that we have joined the family of God, that we are followers of Jesus, that we have accepted the gospel, that we say to Him, He is our Lord and we worship Him. And it's for anyone, it's not just for Israelites, it's not just for men, it's for anyone who will submit and follow Jesus. And that's also why we don't baptize infants, or we don't baptize children, we don't want to baptize anybody who can't make that declaration Okay, is it's not just for everybody who's born into a Christian home. It is for anyone who has belief in God. It's, for those, it's only for those who know that they are a part of the family of God. And so what happens after Israel places themselves on God's team? Well, God does something different. Point number three is that God's side does things differently. Okay, God's side does things differently. Go back to verse 1. Okay, this is not what you do. Okay, when everybody... When the other nations are terrified, okay, when, and it's on the west and the sea and all of them, it's just listing out the, the names of all the people who are terrified. And they are so scared, and they know the Israelites are going to come get them. Well, what does God do? God says, hey, guys, time to get, have all our males, all the men who can fight. Time for them to all get circumcised so they're taken out of commission for several days. That's what I want you guys to do. Okay, that is suicidal. That, that is the... the dumbest possible thing that you could think of, right? Later or earlier back in, in Genesis, there's a time when Jacob's sons trick a town into being circumcised so then they can just go in and kill everybody because you can't fight after this has happened. It, so what God's asking them to do is, hey, now that they're all scared, now that their hearts are melting like a candle or they're melting away like the wicked witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz, now that that is happening to them, I want you guys to just totally decimate your army real quick and leave yourselves defenseless. This seems like the best time to do that. Well, why in the world would God do that? Because God does things His own way. God is more concerned with our faithfulness. God is more concerned about our obedience than He is about pragmatism, than He is about doing what makes the most sense, than doing what the world tells us we should do than doing things how other nations do things or how other people do things. No, no, no. God says, I want you to do things my way. It's actually more important. The most important thing is that you guys are on my side and that you guys are obedient and you guys are walking in faithfulness and in submission to me. That is much more important than waiting until the optimal battle plan, until the best possible circumstances you could have to attack. The most important thing is that you guys are obedient. God is not, he is more concerned with who his people are 
than what's going on in the outside world. The, the, and the world could be raging. They could be excited on the edge of the camp and ready to attack. And still, Israel needs to submit in obedience. Because our obedience is the most important thing. And submitting to circumcision, it's actually it's what allow Israel's to celebrate Passover. Because the law tells them Passover is only for the people who were circumcised. You cannot participate in Passover unless this has happened in your family. And so what this leads us to believe is that it's probably been a long time since they've celebrated Passover. Maybe some families have been obedient and done it, but for the most part, this has not been a big national holiday because it couldn't have been. Because not everybody could have participated. And this is what actually allows them to celebrate and to enter this. And we chatted about Passover last week, right? How it's a, it's a reminder of everything that God has done. How it's supposed to be a celebration of how God has delivered them from Egypt. How God saved them. And its connections to how the Lord's Supper does the same thing. And that's why for the Lord's Supper, right, it's not important that you have to be a member of our church or another church or anything. The important thing is you just have to be baptized. You just need to be in the family before you can have the family meal. It's the same exact thing with Passover, that you need to be circumcised. you got to be in God's family before you participate in God's family meal. And then look what happens when they're obedient. Okay? When they, they take their break and then they celebrate in 11, that day after the Passover, on that very day, it repeats it, it, it does not want you to miss. On the very day after they celebrate, after they submit in obedience and they take time to reflect on God and His grace and all that He has done, what happens? They eat of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes and the parched grain. The land of milk and honey that they have heard about for decades, that their parents, that their grandparents promised to them, they finally get to taste it for themselves. And they've been eating manna every day for 40 years. You think they wanted a break? Okay? Probably. Okay? I, I'm a creature of habit. I eat the same thing every restaurant I go to. And there's some that they're the one I'll go to, and I'm just going to get the same thing. And I already know what I'm going to get. I don't need to see the menu. Just have it ready when I get there. Okay? So I like that. I still, if I ate that every day, maybe for a week it'd be good. Okay? After 40 years, you need, you need something different. Okay? You're ready for a change. Well, now they, they, the manna ceases. And why does the manna cease? Because God is going to continue to bless them in a new way. How much sweeter would it have tasted then after eating manna for so long? And, it, and it's connected. Why does it, it mentions the manna ceases in 12 and they eat the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The rest of the year, manna never comes back. Why? Because they don't need it. The manna was there because they needed it. They needed God to miraculously bring them food because there wasn't enough in the wilderness. But God continues to provide. And it also is connecting. God's provision of manna is pretty miraculous. Okay, food falling from the sky onto your plate is pretty miraculous. That would be crazy. Even after 40 years, that would still be pretty amazing to be like, okay, here it comes, catch it. You know, that, that's, that would blow your mind. Okay, that's miraculous. You couldn't forget, oh yeah, this is only coming if God brings it. Well, he wants us to see, well, the produce of the land, that's all, still only coming if God brings it. You're only getting it because God's allowing you to have it. It's no less miraculous 
While it looks less miraculous on the outside, but the key is that God is still the one doing it. God is still the one providing it. All right, farmers know this, right? You know this really well. You, you, God still has to provide what grows from the ground. You can do the best you can. You can prepare it, but you still got to pray for the rain. You still got to hope that God is going to deliver it and God is going to make this grow and make this work. Because if He doesn't, you're in trouble. You're at the mercy of what God in His grace allows. You know, God doesn't do things the way that we want. So oftentimes we want the manna. We want the incredible miracle. We want to attack right now. We want to do things our way. We want God to do things how we want to do things. But God doesn't do that. Sometimes He gives us the incredible miracle. Sometimes He gives us simple grace and ordinary things. Sometimes we we want to charge into battle headstrong, and sometimes God makes us wait and do something different. Now, I don't know why God works this way. I, I couldn't tell you. I think often he, he does this, and the main reason He does this, if I have to guess, is because obedience is just better. It's better to be faithful and to be obedient and to do things God's way, even if it's different, even if the world tells you it's foolish, even if the world tells you it's a waste of time, even if the world's telling you there's 20,000 other things you could be doing on a Sunday morning that would be way more productive than sitting and listening to some guy talk for too long from a book that's really, really old. God says, no, let's be obedient. Obedience is better. It's better to submit to God and make the hard choice than to sin and rush into battle thinking that's what's going to get you victory. Victory comes from God alone, and we have to trust His way. We have to trust the way that His side, that He wants us to do things, even if it's crazy, even if it's different, even if it doesn't make any sense to us. What we have to do is submit in obedience. So our our application um, is this. Replication is to remember your baptism. I want you to remember your baptism, not just today, but, but this week. As believers, we need to remember that we are members of God's family. That you, because of the wondrous grace and because of the gospel of Jesus, because of how He died on the cross and took your penalty upon Himself, you are in His family. In our baptism, our getting dunked in that water is symbolic of that reality. Like circumcision for Israel was a declaration to the world, we have been adopted into the family of Yahweh and we follow Him. Baptism does the same for us. It's an important marker in the life of a Christian. It's something we should celebrate joyously when it happens. We're, we're pretty good at that usually, right? If somebody, a new believer or somebody who's never been baptized gets baptized, we clap and we celebrate and it's exciting. But it's also something we should look back on fondly. We should look back even on our own lives to the moments we were baptized and look back on it with joy. And I want you to remember your baptism, because it, not just because it's a declaration to the world, but because it's also a declaration and a reminder to yourself that you are God's child, that you are His, that He loves you, that He has adopted you. He has declared that you are no longer just a sinner, but you are righteous. And you are righteous not because you're so awesome, but because Jesus has given His righteousness to you. 
Baptism is a physical experience of God's spiritual stamp of approval on your life. It's acknowledging what, what Jesus has done in you. So it may be a way that you can think about your baptism more often, or you could try that this week, is the next time you take a shower or you take a bath or you get dunked by some water, just take a moment and reflect on your baptism. Take a moment and reflect on what God has done in your life and what that baptism is. And remember, your baptism is God's declaration to you as well that you are loved, that you are His beloved, that He will never leave you nor forsake you, that no matter what battles come into your life that you enter in, you are God's, that He loves you. And if, you're, if you are a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you really need to be. Yeah, there's not much of a category in, in Scripture of somebody who follows Jesus but hasn't been baptized. Just like there's not really much of a category for somebody who's an Israelite but hasn't been circumcised. It, it's kind of step one after you become a believer is to, to get baptized and to declare that you are a follower of Jesus. And so if that's you, I would just love to talk to you about that. I want to hear your story. I want to just talk to you more about baptism. What do you think it means and what a Scripture teaches us? And I'd just love to talk to you about that. And I would really encourage you, implore you to move forward. Let's baptize you in God's name. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, right, if you're here, if you're just listening online or you're unsaved, then you don't need baptism. You don't need to get dunked in some water. You need Jesus and you need the gospel. And, God, and I want you to know that God loves you. God cares about you. He has pursued you. And He wants you in His family. And the waters of baptism are open, but they're open after you jump into the arms of Jesus. And I would love to, to talk to you about that. And then after that, after you, you become a follower of Jesus, then I would love to baptize you. Well, let's get the order right. And if you have been baptized, then you too, you need to remember, remember what baptism tells us. Remember what it declares about who we are. We're, we're going to close uh, singing the song, uh, I am who you say I am. And, and I, I love the, the words of this song. It fits here well because it's a great picture of baptism. It's going to remind us of what baptism declares about us, that you are chosen. Okay, that God, through eternity past, looked out at your life and saw all of the sin. He saw all of your shame. He saw the terrible things you would do in sixth grade that you regret when you were five, that you regretted that you did yesterday, all the things that you cannot believe you have done that you carry with you. God saw all of that and still said, I love you and I want that person in my family. He chose you not because you're so wonderful, but just because of his love. God will not, and you're not forsaken God will not leave anyone in their sin. God will not leave us alone. No matter how strong your addiction is, no matter how hard sin pulls, no matter the lies that the enemy tells you, God loves you. And God wants you, all of you, everyone in His family. That's what baptism tells us. His arms are open wide. And we need all of us, no matter how long or we've walked with Jesus or if this is the first time you ever heard of Jesus, which is probably not true for most of you, or any of you. But no matter what, we need to remember how great His love is and who He says we are. 
not who the enemy tells us we are and not who we think that we are late at night. I'm going to close us in prayer and then our worship team is going to come and lead us in the song so we can just remember who God tells us we are. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you that you roll away the shame of sinners. I thank you that you do not forsake the lost, that you came down from heaven, that you condescended to us in the person of Jesus to save broken, wicked, lost, rebellious people who do not deserve it, like me. Lord, I thank you that you are still in the saving business, that you haven't stopped. God, would you remind us of who you say we are. Lord, would you remind us of our baptism? Would you remind us of how much you love us, how much you cherish us, how much you care about us, how much you paid for us? Remind us of what the gospel says about who we are. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would realize who you want them to be that they would realize how much you love them, that they would realize how much you have sacrificed and paid for them, and that your arms are open and you want them in your family. Lord, remind all of us of who you are. Let us not ever lose sight of the wondrous glory of the gospel and of what you have done for us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.